Ark Insider, the Africa-focused podcast offering some informal but well-informed Africa-focused conversation, touching on news, current affairs, culture, and other ongoing topics of interest. I'm Karen Allen, a former BBC correspondent, and my co-presenter is Tara O'Connor, who heads up Africa Risk Consulting. We both live, breathe, and work African affairs, and our podcast seeks to shed light on a continent which continues to fascinate and draw us in. Tara, welcome. And hello, Karen. Africa talking to the UK. I understand it's snowing at your end. Totally snowy outside. It's got a real sort of Christmassy feel, end of year, um, and snow on the ground, soon to turn to sludge. Sounds lovely. Well, you're making me really homesick. This is the last podcast before we break for the festive season, and we've got a cracking guest whose work reflects the spirit of giving that this time of year is often associated with Tara. Whether it's disaster response, hunger alleviation, education or health, the South African charity Gift of the Givers has made a name for itself for its hands-on approach to dealing with major humanitarian crises and partnering with business to address chronic poverty at home. We'll be speaking to its founder, Dr. Dr. Imtiaz Suleiman a little later in this podcast. I'm so looking forward to speaking to Dr. Suleiman. And it's a, a real achievement. We've been wanting to speak to him for quite a long time, haven't we, Karen? Yeah, and a very inspiring guy. But first, let's take a look at some of the stories that made it into the news since our last podcast. Andre Dereta has resigned as ESCOM chief executive. This comes on the back of continued and prolonged rolling blackouts. Nigeria's defence chief has rubbished a Reuters report that the military ran a secret mass abortion programme in the country's northeast. The news agency alleged that since 2013, the Nigerian army has maintained a secret, systematic and illegal abortion programme. Our top story, Yanis Wallace, the man who assassinated the late SACP leader Chris Hani, has been granted parole. Nurses across much to the UK launched an unprecedented strike today. That's right. Roughly 100,000 nurses are refusing to work, cancelling an estimated 70,000 appointments in England, Wales and Northern Ireland. Satara, one of those stories we have to highlight again from that montage is that Reuters investigation that unearthed Nigeria's secret mass abortion programme in the northeast of the country, involving, what was it, some 10,000 pregnancies of women raped or kidnapped by Islamist militants Boko Haram. We're not going to go into a lot of detail, but I think it does underscore the weaponization of gender in terms of conflict, where women kidnapped by adversaries once freed are violated once again, but this time by their apparent liberators. You and I have seen this in so many settings. It's not a uniquely African problem, but this investigation really does show the human consequences of brutal conflict and particularly the impact on women. Yes, an excellent piece of investigative journalism that again highlights the dangers to women and girls on Nigeria's completely insecure borders. The issue has now escalated and the UN Secretary General has called for a full investigation and remedial action. But then also, Karen, talking about um, Nigeria and pivoting away to the cold, hard subject of commodities. And uh, we see that uh, big in the news recently is that Angola has now overtaken Nigeria as Africa's biggest producer of oil. And it couldn't have come at a worse time for Nigeria, which is losing out from rocketing oil prices owing Mm. to the war in Ukraine. And, you know, Angola, which now exports a little over a million barrels of oil a day, has used to occupy second place. 
but Nigeria has lost the top spot and it looks as though that could be permanent. And it's as much down to sabotage and theft of oil from the oil producing regions as lack of investment in existing fields. And now this yeah. in the country, this is sort of going to excel, you know, intensify the economic problems that Nigeria is facing just as the country prepares to head to uh, presidential and presidential and general elections in uh, in February next year. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And since I'm on Angola, another bit of item in the news is that the late president, uh, the late president's daughter, Isabel dos Santos, is now the subject of an international arrest warrant. You will recall that she was named Africa's richest woman but she has been the subject of several multiple international investigations which have shown how insider deals, political connections and international professional enablers helped her amass this vast fortune. Yeah, and she was one of those people who, you know, was almost untouchable, wasn't she? Yeah. And it's quite interesting to see the law sort yeah. of catching up with her and, and seeing whether those international arrest warrants will actually be Executed. Will be exactly, and do you execute ex arrest warrants? I think you probably yes, do. you do. <laughs> you do execute yeah, an do. arrest warrant, but it's also, I mean, you know, Isabel dos Santos obviously denies all charges, and is also has then set her hat at potentially a presidential candidacy to uh, to get out of the uh, of the mm. of the. But I don't see that happening. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, speaking of politics and jostling for positions, Cyril Ramaphosa, South Africa's president and leader of the governing African National Congress, is fighting to retain his position as party leader during an elective conference at which the top brass of the former party of Nelson Mandela will be selected. Now, Mr Ramaphosa is going head-to-head -head with the former health minister, Zwele Mekize, but both men have been embroiled in separate scandals. Ramaphosa's concerns of theft, a Sudanese businessman and 580,000 US dollars found stuffed in his sofa at his game farm in Limpopo, in what's been dubbed Farmgate by the South African press. Uh, in the other corner, Zvele Makize was implicated in a corruption scandal worth to the tune of about 10 million US dollars involving the state's COVID-19 communications campaign. But he resigned. He denied that his family had benefited from the contract. So he still has a cloud above his head, although he has sworn his innocence. Now, the ANC National Executive Conferences are always heated affairs. I spent many times marching the corridors covering those. Can't say I miss it. Um, but it is particularly relevant because who ends up leading the party will almost certainly be South Africa's next president when the country goes to the polls in 2024. What the analysts are also talking about is that this Cyril Ramaphosa scandal marks the end of the ANC in power. And I think that's it marks the beginning of the end of the ANC in power. And I think that's a true prediction. It is, but it's a long end because a long that yes, for some time. a long end. Watch this space. Yes. You're listening to the Ark Insider with me, Karen Allen, and Tara O'Connor. The festive season is upon us and it's often considered to be a time for giving and giving back. So it's particularly appropriate that our guest for this episode is possibly one of South Africa's most well-known humanitarians. 
He's a medical doctor turned relief worker whose work has spanned the world of crisis response, hostage negotiation, nutrition, health and educational development, both internationally and at home. His work has taken him to hotspots such as Syria, Mali, Somalia and more recent Ukraine, but he's also committed his foundation to working in his native South Africa on projects which have seen him deploy what looks like a battalion of medics, dietitians, dentists and physios into some of the most deprived and neglected parts of the country to set up health camps aimed at helping communities who oftentimes feel forgotten by the state. I'm talking, of course, of Dr. Imtiaz Suleiman, founder of the South African charity Gift of the Givers. Dr. Suleiman, welcome to The Ark Insider. Uh, good afternoon. Thank you very much. Really nice to talk to you. You're talking to me here in South Africa, and Tara, who's just returned from South Africa, is now back in the UK. Yes, just got back to London, where I'm speaking to you from a London snowscape. We have snow. Good to talk to you also. We've got so much to talk to you about, Dr. Suleiman, because you've had quite an incredible journey spanning several continents. Um, you and your charity, I, I have to say, are something of a household name. I don't want to sound too gushing, but your work has taken you to Mali, which gained a lot of international prominence, where you helped to negotiate the release of al-Qaeda's longest-held prisoner, Steve McGowan. You've delivered food in Yemen, Syria and Somalia, right through to undertaking missions at home in South Africa. But I understand the transition from medical doctor to humanitarian really began not here in South Africa, but actually in the Balkans. Well, actually, it started in Turkey. Mm -hmm. I met a spiritual teacher in August 91 in Turkey. And when I got there, it was, remember, it was post-Gulf War. And the Gulf War had polarized civilizations. And coming from an apartheid past where there was prejudice and stereotypes, you know, when we got to Turkey, I was stunned to see Americans, Russians, Germans, all types of Europeans, people from Brazil, Mexico, Argentina, Canada, parts of Africa, Asia, all in a Muslim holy place. And mm -hmm. these included Jews, Christians, Hindus, Muslims, and people who say we don't believe. What struck me was the respect that everyone had for each other. And there was an overwhelming flow of love and acceptance. And the spiritual teacher who guided the entire process, I met and I made eye contact with him, saw him for the first time, and fell in love with a man that I don't even know. Mm -hmm. I left, came back to South Africa, and the yearning to go to Turkey became strong. So 6 August 92, Thursday night, 10 p.m., I was in the same place. The spiritual teacher, after a religious ceremony, lifted his head up, looked me in the eye, and looked heavenwards. And in fluent Turkish, and I don't speak a word of Turkish, but I understood every single word that he said in Turkish. He said, my son, I'm not asking you, I'm instructing you to form an organization. The name in Arabic will be Wakful Wakifin, translated, Gift of the Givers. You will serve all people of all races, all religions, all colors, all classes, all cultures, of any geographical location and of any political affiliation, but you will serve them unconditionally. This is an instruction for you for the rest of your life. I asked him, how is it when you speak Turkish? I understand, and other people speak Turkish, I don't understand. He said, when the hearts connect and the souls connect, the words become understandable. I said, I'm a doctor in private practice. I have three surgeries in a place called Peter Marisberg in South Africa. What exactly am I supposed to do? He gave me one line, you will know. For 30 years, I do know. The day I walked, that same night when I walked out of that place, 
It came to me, respond to the civil war in Bosnia. The same month, August 92, I took in 32 containers of aid. In November, another eight containers of winter items. And in 93, we designed the world's first containerized mobile hospital, a product and a design of South African technology and engineering taken from South Africa, from Africa into Europe. That's quite a journey. Quite a journey. And, um, you know, now with 30 years of experience um, behind you, and there's clearly obviously a spiritual element to this, which is the driving force, but what otherwise would you say are the, great, are the ingredients of a great humanitarian? It, it, it's, there's lots of issues, a lot of factors that mould humanitarians. It comes from, more firstly, your family, because they are your direct contact. My father and my mother both were very charitable, although they were divorced. My mother moved back to Devon from a place called Potchestroom where I was born, and she would say she wants to create, she started an employment bureau, finding people jobs. And she said the most dignified thing you can do to a person is to find them their own job. And then she would say that those people who don't have means, even if we do one or two or three or five food parcels, we must go out and seek the people. So she did that, and whatever she did, she was very regular at what she did. My father, on the other hand, was in a family business with his, fa his father and the uncles and the brothers. And they would give accounts to mostly black people. And a time would come when they couldn't pay the accounts. And my father would say, it's fine. Give them more stuff. They've been supporting us for years. We won't get the money back. It's okay. Then, of course, comes the religion. The religion of Islam is very strict. That God is not in need of your prayer if you, f if you fail to supply, supply neighborly needs. Now that means any kind of service, it doesn't matter about race, religion, color, belief or non-belief, your neighbor next door, down the road, in the continent, in the next world, you know, you have to serve unconditionally, neighborly needs. So that's what drives our families. And from a young age, all the children are taught the principle that you have to give. You've said it's a non-denominational organization, Gift of the Givers. Right at the beginning, was it difficult to prove that point more widely? You know, it's a Muslim organization. It was set up. You had a lot of support from the Islamic community. Um, and, you know, I, th I think I was reading that, you know, it was quite a battle right at the beginning just to try and make the point that this is so inclusive and that you're basically helping in so many different parts of the world, regardless of faith, as well as in South Africa. And you're not a front organisation. How did you go about dealing with that? Well, that was a challenge. The apartheid past didn't help. You know, the church, the NGK church, spoke about three dangers in Afrikaans. They said, Roy Sakhafar, which means communists, Swaz Sakhafar, which means blacks, and Muslim Sakhafar, which meant Muslims. So that was something that was taught in the, in the church. Yeah. And, but while that was taught, you can't paint everybody with the same brush. There were a lot of people who didn't follow that, that, that kind of principle, who wanted to be open, but the laws prevented them from interacting. We had a lot of white neighbors where our shops were, and they were absolutely decent with us. There was no issue. So that challenge was there, and it was also driven by the media. Mm. And the international media, you know, didn't help with issues in, in Iraq, the Gulf War, Afghanistan, you know, and, and all those kind of things happening. It just created a negative perception about all oh, these Muslims are terrorists, you know, we're fundamentalists. And the sad thing was that the first project, well, sad thing in inverted commas, it was the first project that we got involved in. The moment I walked out of that place on the 6th of August 1992 was the civil war in Bosnia. Mm. And again, it seemed to be 
siding one side of a community, one religion, you know, in a conflict where Serbs, Croats, you know, Orthodox and uh, well, Catholic Christians, uh, and of course the Serbs were Orthodox kind of people, and it, it created an impression. And yet our aim was never like that. We offered it to everybody where we went. And then when we helped Africa, Afghanistan in 2001 with an earthquake, and earlier before that, what do you know, what fighting, sending medical supplies, again, is regarded as being Muslim. And then when we tried, negotiated the release of Yolani Koki from Yemen, oh, you got her out because you're connected to the Al-Qaeda. You're a terrorist yourself. Mm -hmm. You know how to deal with terrorists and that kind of impression. But I mean, it was a small voice. And all credit goes earlier in 1993, when a journalist from my hometown in Peter Marisburg, a journalist from The Witness called Tony Ostazen, decided to write about the hospital that we were taking to Bosnia and made it a front page, a full page article. And from there onwards, sentiments started changing. And then when the media traveled with us to many of our destinations, it became quite clear that these guys got nothing to do with religion. They got everything to do with humanitarian aid. Because in our teams, the composition were more people who are not of the Muslim faith rather than the Muslims. You talked about the international media focusing on gift of the givers, and, and obviously there were certain peak moments when, when they did. And the, the hostage crisis in Mali, Steve McGowan, who was a South African, with, also with a British passport, was, I think, the longest held captive by Al-Qaeda. I, you were able to get extraordinary access and were involved in the hostage negotiations. You mentioned uh, Yolanda Corky, who is a, a South African who had been held uh, prior to that, so that already had given you form in being involved in these types of negotiations. But, you know, when you spoke to some of the hostage takers, did they approach you differently? Were you um, given more access because you shared the faith? And was it putting more pressure on you to be able to offer something when, you know, the mandate that you had from your organisation, but also sort of from the South African government who knew what you were doing when you were going in to negotiate these situations, that you weren't able to pay ransom, that you weren't able to, to offer this. So, you know, what did you get a sense with your, with your opposite numbers, if you like? What did they want? What did these armed groups actually want? Well, it's clear from the beginning, they tell you quite clearly that the person is an asset to them. They need money. They need money or they need an exchange of prisoners or they need both. And then we had to convince them. It, it, took, it took a long time. They mm. couldn't understand that Stephen McGowan is a white guy, but he's an African. What is a white guy doing in Africa? He's supposed to be from Europe and Britain and he's got a British passport. So that just didn't help at all. Yeah. And it took some time, but you don't speak to them directly. You speak through intermediaries who speak to somebody else, who speak to somebody else, and it changes go so long. But what they, we eventually got them to understand was that this was a South African and has nothing to do with Europe. So that was the first thing. Secondly, it may have helped that we were a Muslim, although the religion is not of consequence, because this is not a religious transaction. Mm -hmm. This is a straightforward business transaction in the name of religion, and it's totally contrary to what religion teaches. Yeah. So, of course, there was, there was no principle. And thirdly, I think what counted in our favor more than religion or being Muslim was the fact that we were from Africa. And that, I think, made a huge difference, that this was an African NGO. But as you mentioned in the beginning, it's not known for African NGOs to do these kind of things. And it, the, the other thing was to have leverage and to build relationships with people who had relationships with them who could actually put in a word for you. Mm -hmm. So the process initially was to say, Will you accept us to be as negotiators? Because they don't accept everybody to be a negotiator. And they came back, yes. Secondly, 
we, you know, to build trust, which we did. Thirdly, we said, look, we can't pay ransom money. We don't do that. But we can talk to the family and whatever, but the family is not rich. But just to keep the dialogue open. And then, of course, they opened the door for negotiation and say, okay, the, the money can come down. From six or seven million, it will come down to four and then three and then two to, to that effect. Then they'll tell you, we don't want any money. We just want so many of our friends released from jail. And I would say that's not in our capacity to do that. And then eventually, when we won them their trust over completely, they said, you've done well, you know the procedure, but yeah, you can't go beyond this point. Now you have to pass it on to your government, to your state security, that's going to speak to the Mali government, to the Mali state security. There's arrangements to be made, the security for the, for the hostage, we need some kind of guarantees, and it stops there. And at that point, I handed the thing over completely to our government and to our state security. Did you have people behind you giving you some sort of sense of, of how these things work? No. It was done totally from just inter, inter, in, internal belief. It started off with Yolani Koki. Yeah. I taken my, I just opened up an office in Yemen in 2012, August. And in, I was in Syria in 2013. And the guy that runs the office in Yemen is an Arab. He's a journalist. And of course, he speaks the language. So I said, my friend, you better come across to Syria. It's your own kind of language. We may need you out there. Plus, you're a journalist. And also, I want to train you. You've only worked with me for a few months. You don't know how we operate. So he came. And immediately, he got back. We got back around the 21st, 22nd, five days later. We get the news that Yolande Koki and her husband are taken hostage in, in, in Yemen. And he asked me, what do we do? I said, our, our motto says best among people are those who benefit mankind. I think this fits inside there. Mm-hmm. Let's just do it. We've got no experience. And the government's not going to talk to them because the government said they don't talk to terrorists. And we don't do it. What's going to happen to South Africans? So we got involved. And, and all we did, we increased our leverage. From May that year till January the following year, we started sending more containers of aid, more support, more help in all the provinces to build a relationship with the tribal leaders. And on January 6, 2013, 14, the call came. Are you the guy that keeps saying you're from South Africa, you represent a South African organization, you're Yemeni, and that you want looking for some hostages? We the people, we got them. At that point, we didn't know whether it's just an honorary group Al-Qaeda, you don't know who it is, or it's just a grudge. Come tomorrow to Aden at 10 a.m., be at a certain place. So he comes. They watch, they wait, nobody turns up. And suddenly they come, they fetch him, take him to a house, and say, welcome to this house. You will know who we are. We are Al-Qaeda, and you know what we're capable of. So because of that incident, we learned how they, and their minds work. And when we went to Mali, it was different. We had no leverage. Mm. We had nobody we knew. No offers, no friends, no distribution. And I had to send in a Mali guy from South Africa who knew the people, who knew, who knew the language. And we started doing projects in Mali just to bring goodwill and win people over. And that's what happened. And eventually, because of that, they started trusting us and they then decided to talk to us. And Dr. Suleiman, if I might broaden it out a bit now to focus on your humanitarian aid uh, and the giving front, and, it, and also the, the, the sort of power of civil society organisations that we talked about that, well, power of civil society organisations under apartheid and particularly in South Africa, when you see some of the work that you're doing delivering aid, food, healthcare to some of the poorest communities in South Africa, it reminds me a little bit of the organisations behind the United Democratic Front in the 80s and 90s 
that um, that were incredibly powerful amongst the uh, uh, in the changeover, um, and somehow among the chaos of power outages and load shedding, the political wranglings and crime, uh, that you and other NGO organisations are beginning to use your weight and force um, once again to shape the political narrative. Is that a fair assessment? We're not shaping the political narrative. We're giving government a responsibility to do what they're supposed to do. And I'm quite open with the government. I have a very good relationship with the government. The spiritual teacher told me in 95, I've been there to Turkey 28 times, and in 95 he told me, you will never get involved in politics, you will never stand for, for, for elections, you will never work inside government, you will always work with government. And for 30 years I've been working with government. We fight in the day and we're friends in the night. And we have people inside the government services, you know, politicians and civil servants who love us and there are those who hate us. It's, it's, it's because some people think we're doing their job or we're making them look stupid. And sometimes, yes, we are making them look stupid because they don't do their job. Mm. But overall, our aim is not to unseat government. Our aim is not to run them down or to be a competition or, you know, or to be an egoistic uh, approach. Our aim is to make them conscious of what they are there for. And I tell them very clearly, when you stand for government, you come there for one purpose only serve the people. But many of you are there to serve yourself. It is not congruent in what you've been elected for, and you need to change that. And we get buy-in from a lot of politicians, ministers, premiers to say what you're saying is correct. So we have a lot of government people calling us, but I emphasize to them, to the chief open parliament, to the people in the political party, you have let the people down and you need to fix the system. We are there to hold your hand, but it's not going to happen forever. And I suppose, um, Dr. Suleiman, I guess the question is, what's the out point? Because just to give listeners an idea of the sort of work that you're doing, you know, you, you do incredible hospital refurbishment here in South Africa, for instance. I mean, one of the most a sort of high profile cases over the past uh, year and a half, I think, was a hospital that was barely able to function uh, because of water issues. And I think within about two or three days, your guys had drilled a borehole and the hospital was up and running again. Don't you get accused of letting the government off the hook? I mean, I accept that you have private conversations and say, you know, you need to see this is what a government must do. But um, you're, you're plugging the gap. Um, and, and what we're seeing is, is state failure, a failure to deliver the key services that are required of states. Do you not worry that, in a sense, you're, you're propping up bad practice because there's little incentive for for government and my goodness we're talking about government as if it's an individual this massive system to be able to turn around or do you do you really have faith that actually four or five years time they'll pick up the mantle and start doing the kind of service delivery that you are providing number one we're not doing this for the government number two are people going to suffer forever because government is too slow to act the systems are a problem number three Instead of people saying we're propping up the government, the government gets a severe backlash from the media and, and its own followers to say, why is an NGO doing what you're supposed to do? We should actually not pay taxes to you. We should rather pay the taxes to the NGO. They're far more efficient. They don't waste money. They get the job done. That sentiment is putting a lot of pressure. It's part of the thing you know, when you spoke about the political narrative. Mm. Well, indirectly, it's driving that, you know, to say that if you don't do the job, you need to be replaced. It's, and it's coming from their own followers, you know, and their own followers are asking us, I'm talking about the ruling party. How do we remove the ruling party? 
That's the question coming from the old followers, especially the young generation. They've had it with the, with the stealing and money disappearing, and they've had it more than anything else with no service delivery. So it's a big problem. And yes, to answer your question, that's why I said we're giving you four years. You, you, you know, you, you drop the ball, you allow state capture to come. You guys talk about state capture like somebody else outside your party did it. It's your own party they did it. It's not somebody else, you know. And you and you fail your your people and make it sound like it's some outside factor. It's you yourself. You need to fix that and be cognizant of that. And you know, so the reality is they are worried, and they want to fix the system. I was with the youngest MP on the African continent last week, also in the Free State, and he says the youth want honest, credible leaders. They don't want any more crooks. This is the sentiment among the old and the youth. And the pressure is coming because of that. And the final point on this is, to be fair to government, we have a very low tax base. Yeah. Seven million people's taxes can't look after 65 million people. So even if they didn't stole, steal, and even if they did everything the correct way, and they were honest and perfect in every way, they still were going to have a problem. And that's why I'm saying, we'll support you for four years, get corporate South Africa behind me and the public behind me. You fix all the systems increase the jobs, and let's do increase in the tax base. You've talked about corporate South Africa, and that's one of the most interesting developments, really, because you've really grown this idea of corporate social responsibility. You've got a tremendous range of partners, including um, what companies such as Anglo-American, Ford Motor Cars, ShopRite, Walmart, to name a few. The South African government's often accused of not being particularly pro-business, and I don't know if that's fair or not. But how have you been able to win the confidence of, of corporate South Africa to support projects and to walk hand-in-hand hand with you and to have that same idea that we give government four years and, you know, we will push in the same direction um, and see what we can do during that time? There, there's been, uh, there's, there was a, 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 a tremendous mindset change with corporates when COVID struck. And it was there that they recognized our, our capabilities and what we did. We assisted 210 hospitals nationwide. And the corporates came to us and said, we want to help. Don't worry about a tax certificate or media coverage or BE points. How do we save our country and our people? Because they had personal loss and they had personal difficulty. And they said, all these years, people have been poor and we didn't understand it. Now when people lost jobs in our family people, now we understand what hardship is all about. What do you want and how much do you want? The key defining moment was the floods this year, 11 April 2022. Up to one o'clock in the morning, I was getting calls not from people who wanted boats and helicopters and divers and earth moving equipment to save lives. I was getting calls from corporate South Africa late into the early hours of the morning saying we want to save our people, what must we do? And the younger generation, uh, you know, uh, in a country where there is unemployment rate in excess of 35% of the young population, how do you reach young people with this message? And is the humanitarian service attractive to young people in that, with that level of unemployment? Yes, there's two parts to it. One is there's a huge interest in humanitarian service. People come from difficult situations and they try their best to help their old people in difficult situations. And they're encouraged by the old people who've gone through years of hardship. So yes, there is. But I'm pushing another plan again while talking to corporate South Africa, telling them give apprenticeships to young people. You give them a stipend, not a salary. But if you give them a stipend of 2,000 rand, we take away a, a big factor in the country, hunger. That 2,000 rand will feed an entire family and will take away a lot of the hunger problem in the country. But more than that, it will empower the individual and individuals. It will give them self-worth, esteem, 
We have a huge shortage of teachers. We lost 2,000 teachers in COVID. And there's a lot of them who are old and sick and they're going to fall off soon. We're going to need thousands of teachers. Besides normal teachers, we need special education needs teachers. There's a huge learning disorders in South Africa. We need tons of nurses, paramedics, and we need hundreds of psychologists because of the effect of COVID, the civil unrest, the, the floods, job losses, unemployment, dis, you know, bereavement, all that kind of stuff. So there are already avenues in which to plug young people into the system. We just need to redefine what we fund and how we fund it. And there can be huge amounts of jobs. There's a huge requirement in agriculture. And also, if we go back to the textile industry, stop importing from China and start supporting local, which four companies are already doing. And if you do that, not only do you support textile industry, you support cotton farming, which has been destroyed because the corporates themselves killed it by importing. But Dr. Suleiman, without being the person who always sounds so cynical and putting a down on it, because this is incredibly inspirational, there are structural problems, aren't there? There are structural problems that need to be overcome. So you talked about teachers. We don't have teacher training colleges anyway, anymore. Um, you know, there's the idea about creating um, apprenticeships and stipends. You know, so many of us are behind that. It seems such a great idea. It's worked in so many other settings. But you have to win the unions over on that. How do you get over some of those really big structural issues and legacy issues as well? Now, the colleges have been opening and opening again. The universities are taking far more students. In terms of medical students, they're looking at bringing, expanding the medical college. But of course, that means you need more academic hospitals. You can't have 50 people seeing one patient. It's ridiculous. You know, a junior intern, an intern, a medical officer, a junior officer, a registrar. We can't do that. It's just no dignity. So we have to bring in more hospitals into the field. Nelson Mandela University has opened a medical faculty in Port Elizabeth. Newcastle has come to a private college. So there are moves afoot. Of course, the government's biggest problem is their own decision-making process. Mm. That is obstructive in many ways, you know. And you asked me about corporate South Africa. Yes, there are a lot of decisions that take them too long. Why did we wait so many years to allow independent power producers? We wait till the disaster happens, then you think. Government doesn't understand three critical ideas. Yeah. Urgency, emergency, and disaster is not in their vocabulary. You know, where there's a world, there's a way we can fix the system because corporates are buying to the idea. Government departments are buying to the idea. So the, 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 the mindset change has started. Thank you so much. You've been listening to The Ark Insider with Karen Allen and Tara O'Connor. If you're interested, Ark publishes in-depth risk briefings on 22 countries around the continent. Subscribe to these at info at africarisconsulting.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do let us know. You can use the same address and do feel free to share our podcast on social media and amongst friends. Our sound engineer was Ludwig Boer and this podcast is a Karen Allen International production. Bye for now. <laughs>